As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show and our latest batch of listener questions. On today's show, we're tackling ProRel. We're ranking our favourite animal pitch invasions and we're asking, why soccer so popular? My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to answer these questions and much, much more, your friend and mine, Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Taylor. Hello. Excited to be here. Excited to have you, darling. You're wearing a hat today. Listener can't appreciate that, but I like it. It's a good look. Uh, it's what happens when you uh, haven't had a haircut and the, the curls are showing and it looks like chaos otherwise. So there you go. Yeah. There, there's the there's the hair without the hat and the hat goes right back on. And just, Your choice just, of top hat is interesting. Yeah. I was <laughs> going to say, I know Willy Wonka's coming out, Taylor, but it's uh, you, you're really uh, leading that look. I like it. Yeah, I, I forgot the monocle. That's sort of on me. I, I do apologize. But otherwise, I've got the pocket watch. I've got the cane. I feel like I am prepared to, to mm. be a Willy Wonka replacement if need be. And the chocolate factory behind you as well. Nice purchase. <laughs> yes. Staffed by poorly compensated uh, labor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No big deal. No big deal. Don't ask questions. We're fine. Ah, joining us, you just heard his voice, Graham Rutherford. Hello, Graham. Hello, Ryan. How are you? Are you excited for Christmas? It's just around the uh, around the corner, which for me just means lots of time to play football manager. I asked my Twitter yesterday which teams I should go. I'm already planning it, what teams I should go. My favourite response was, go Wimbledon and only sign Northerners. <laughs> which I'm definitely going to do, just oh, to dear. annoy you, Ryan, over Christmas. All right. Well, you do you, Graham. That's I wonderful. have questions. Taylor's got his hand up. Graham, is your family aware that this is part of the plan, or is this just sort of was, a Graham plan? I, I was just about to say this. Like, <laughs> yeah. do, at the festive period, do you have more time? Yeah, like, I'm, you I'm work fascinated. in soccer and you have family. Like, how does How does that work? I'm just not going to sleep. I'm, I'm going to have more time. Not going to the the podcast isn't going to be on next week. Don't know if listeners are aware of that, but that is our plan is to take a a week and a half off. So yeah, I'll have a little bit more time. When I was a teenager, I would keep big notepads of like stats and stuff to do with my football manager teams. So I feel like I am pretty close to re-entering that kind of realm with all my note taking. I've already got like transfer plans and teams that I want to go over the next two weeks. Yeah. Are are we taking a week off the podcast, or did we just tell Graham that? Find out soon, listener. (laughs) Joining us also, Joe Lowry. I'm just distracted by how when Taylor was describing Willy Wonka's attire, he's also perfectly describing Mr. Peanut's attire, and I didn't realize how aggressive the crossover was between those two fashion icons. Um, This show's already off to a rip-roaring start. (laughs) Would you watch a Mr. Peanut movie, though, Joe? Yes. Genuinely, the answer is yes. (laughs) That's all I have to say. No further questions. Very good. 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 I, no further I, answers. I have some more for Graham. Graham, how quickly do your eyes, uh, uh, do the eyes of your wife glaze over when you start telling her about your football manager plans? Oh, very quickly. Yeah. I mean, that is her default <laughs> setting when she's just talking to me about anything, to be honest, is just glazed over eyes. But uh, yeah, they're particularly glassed over when I'm talking about football manager. And have you done all of your shopping? Like, are you fully prepared for, for the holiday? No. And now you can just, okay, cool, no. cool, cool, cool. I feel better. No. Than I, yeah. When I'm, I'm Scottish and I'm a man, Taylor. I'm going to do it all on Christmas Eve and wonder yeah. why all the shelves are bare and there's hey, nothing that I want. I'm glad I'm in good company. We have a, uh, my wife got 
uh, me a diehard advent calendar, so every day is Hans Gruber following, falling one more level down Nakatomi Tower. Uh, and today when I realized that we were at the 20th <laughs> was a moment of like, oh no, <laughs> like we're not in the teens yeah. anymore. <laughs> I gotta I gotta maybe I step had, up my game a little bit. Yeah, I had that last week where bef- before my daughter goes to bed, we'll say to her, and how many sleeps until Christmas? Yeah. And two days ago it was seven. Is it really? It can't be seven <laughs> days until Christmas. I've got things to do. We are, we are striking fear into the disorganized amongst our listener base, so let's uh, move away from this topic and towards the listener questions shall we by the way patreon.com slash total soccer show for all our bonus content if you would like to support the show why not it's fun there's a discord can't spell disco without it that's a fact uh <laughs> bonus, <laughs> bonus still not a fact by the way just to be very very clear can't spell did i get it around the wrong way i again? think yeah i think you flipped it yeah maybe maybe i'm wrong i was only half listening to be honest because i just tune that part out every time Attaboy, either way Joe. Support uh, my uh, tautological and illogical <laughs> statements and uh, our bonus episodes at patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, listener questions are coming in. Here's one from Cam Tate. This is a big one. Maybe one we don't often step t- uh, take a step back and look at quite enough. Cam says, why is soccer the world's most popular sport? Uh, now, Taylor does seem mm. to be the case that it's the world's most popular sport. Billions of fans estimated by the several internet websites I looked at to get that number. I think there's a few reasons I would outline for its popularity. Uh, very little equipment needed. It's very universal, very simple rules. So uh, uh, adoption is very easy across any territory. And also we can delve into all the politics and the British exporting things yeah. being a superpower and the reason why cricket is the second world uh, most popular sport in the world. That kind of imperialism. Is that really true? Fun. Yeah. Oh, man, oh, it's not the same best. Sorry, you said Gerard Piquet's <laughs> balloon league? That's what you said, right? <laughs> That's coming in uh, hot in third, Joe, awesome. behind cricket right. and soccer. Yeah. yeah. I guess I'm not surprised by that. I feel like basketball is maybe coming for cricket in the near future, but... Maybe we've also been saying that for quite some time. Uh, yeah, Ryan, I think you've, you've laid the basics really well. Uh, and where I always start with this, weirdly, is paintball. Uh, the one time I played paintball in my life, I remember thinking, like, there, is, there are so many barriers to playing this. I don't understand how it will ever, like, truly catch on. And I don't think it will. Uh, because to play paintball, you have to get to the facility, which is usually... Like in some isolated area, which means you have to have transportation, you have to have money for gear, uh, money for like the balls themselves, money to even play in the facility because you can't just sort of do it in your neighborhood. People don't like having paint shot at their homes, it turns out. Um, in soccer, by contrast, you really just need a ball and you can play in your backyard. You can play in a hallway. Daryl and I used to play soccer tennis at halftime of games when we needed a little bit of like pick me up energy. Um, I, I drove past a, like just an open field last week, as one does, you know, for fun. Uh, And there was like a group of clearly high schoolers just like out on a Saturday afternoon, uh, just sort of just kicking around. And I feel like that that is a way to get get out, sort of have some physical engagement, but just pass the ball around. We used to play a game called One Touch that required very little effort. And we would play that for like six hours at a time. So I think it lends itself towards people playing a number of different games in a number of different ways, but it's a very simple game to pick up, as you said, Ryan. And then I think from the history perspective, it is the case that it's basically exported at a time at like the right place, right time, right moment where it just gets kind of picked up and catches fire and spreads from there. So I think there is an element of right place, right time in history, uh, as well as the kind of growth uh, via export. And then also just the simplicity of the game and the ease that you can uh, play it with. Yeah. Well, I, for one, was expecting a paintball analogy to kick off uh, this you. question. Gotcha. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Graham, any other uh, random sport analogies? Pickleball, maybe? Uh, the most random analogy I have is kind of F1. So I'm an F1 fan. I know you dabble in a bit of F1 as well, Ryan. And it's similar yes. to, to Taylor. <laughs> oh, man, I hate how much I like that. That was amazing. That was amazing. <laughs> that was so good. Anyway, um, F1, the barriers to entry are quite high, right? For F1, there's a reason that all those guys are the sons of billionaires. It's not cheap to get started in that sport. And you can't really at lunchtime, to Taylor's point, you can't really at lunchtime be like, do I nip out to the park and play a bit of F1? Doesn't really work that way. So football mm-hmm. has that going for it. The other thing that I, I kind of um, I landed on as an answer for this question, um, so I know, I know the beautiful game is a bit of a cliche, but... Soccer really is like an attractive, spectacular sport. So here's a, here's an analogy. My dad isn't a football fan at all, right? He'd, he'd struggle to name a player not called Messi or Ronaldo. But the other week, I showed him their, their Garnacho overhead kick against Everton on my phone. And he thought that was cool. He thought that was like an amazing thing. If that had been a rugby scrum 
or a good F1 pit stop or something like that. It just mm. doesn't have the same kind of like wow factor. It's, it lends itself, soccer lends itself to people, well, in the past it used to be the, the water cooler discussion, like soccer lends itself to that. In the modern age, it kind of lends itself to social media impressions. So I think that is definitely a factor in why it's um, the most popular. Indeed. Joe, anything to add to this conversation? We'll talk about British imperialism for a couple of minutes, maybe. I don't have a couple minutes worth of material, but it is absolutely in my notes. I think that is, and Taylor, you got to some of this, like the, the biggest, most original factor, right? Taylor, you talked about it being the right time in history as England was having their mitts in everybody's pots, basically <laughs> on every continent. Like in- England played soccer and they brought it to a whole bunch of places along with other stuff as well. It catches on in Europe. It catches on in Africa and uh, England bring it to the Americas and to Brazil, to some of these other places. And all of a sudden now people are playing soccer everywhere. And at that point, that's when the simplicity of the game in terms of the equipment needed, I think takes over as the biggest factor without England's, you know, muddying up the waters everywhere and bringing it to all these different places. I don't think soccer becomes what it is today. And without the nature of the sport being so simple, from an equipment perspective, I also don't think it catches on in the way it does today. For for me, those are the two biggest factors and in that order throughout history as the game grows. Mm. You, you're welcome, by the way, Joe. You're welcome. <laughs> and then I That's think- one of the few things that Britain took to the world didn't steal from the rest of the world. Like that James A. Caster bit that we watched. That was one of, that's one of my yeah. favorite. We're still yeah, looking, looking at, at it. it yet. Yeah. <laughs> a long time ago, everyone in Britain got on a big old boat. We set sail and we robbed everybody in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan's laughing, but he wants to defend it. Uh, I think also there is the idea, like it, the globalized nature of the game today. Like you don't have, yes, the Premier League is probably the dominant league, but it is not the only league, whereas so many American sports are. Like the NFL is here, even if they're trying to expand to other countries, it's not nearly, you know, even if it does catch on, it's still going to be American football will reign supreme. I think baseball is the same. Yeah. You have it in other countries, but it is Major League Baseball. Hockey, kind of the same too. I think with soccer, you can have so many different leagues and you can have players from different countries playing in those leagues. And I think it does sort of generate global interest in so many different ways, not to mention like little things that further that like FIFA. I think just it being a very catchy video game to play pulls people in from a young age and you can go and play with your own team and get familiar with players and, and clubs. And then you want to watch a little bit more and see what they're actually doing. And I think it it has so many different aspects that I think are enjoyable, including those clips that I think pull in people who are sort of nominally interested. When you see that bike, maybe that makes you want to watch a little bit more, even if it means you end up watching Manchester United. Yeah, the the global thing, Taylor, it's a little bit of a, a chicken and egg situation, but it is a self-perpetuating thing where I think in, in American soccer, that's a factor that American soccer fans, they look at Europe, where obviously the strongest leagues are and the strongest teams, and they think, well, let's be as good as them. And it kind of pushes people on and on and on. And there's there's not a country in the world where there isn't some sort of soccer culture. I mean, North Korea has a national team that has played at a World Cup. There's a, um, a, a film out at the moment, a Taika Waititi film, first time I've ever pronounced that correctly, uh, which is did based you? on the documentary about, let's just say a dead right. That's the closest I've ever come. It's based on the documentary about um, the American Samoa team in like the middle of the Pacific Oceans, in the, in, in the Pacific Ocean, and um, their attempt to make it to a World Cup. So there is, there's literally, and I mean that, literally, not a country in the world that doesn't have some kind of soccer ecosystem. And as I say, it kind of, it's a self-perpetuating thing and it keeps the whole thing moving forward. Wonderful. Long may it continue. Cam, thank you very much for that question. Let's go to Ben Sundstrom, who says, the USMNT has a history of playing in Copper America in the past, but how would today's team fare if they were to compete in other Confederations Cup competitions? The Euros, the Africa Cup of Nations, Asian Cup, uh, OFC Nations Cup, etc. and so on. And there's a B part to this question. Is the Gold Cup the only version of these tournaments where B or C squads are a regular occurrence uh joe i'll come to you first on this one where do we think the usmt would finish in say the euros or afcon or those caliber of contests would they win uh some of them i think they'd have a really good chance to win so i went back to the most recent edition of each of these tournaments to give at least some baseline for the format and for the teams participating and just sort of try to imagine if all of those teams are in the present day because that's easier than trying to extrapolate out who all would be in what pots for all this stuff, and it gets really complicated. So this is already complicated, but I, I chose the path of slightly less resistance. The last edition of the Euros was played in 2021. 
being generous to the US, I, I gave them pot two status, which I think is is possible. There are six groups in the most recent version of the Euros, which means we're talking about the US as being, I don't know, like 10 through 12, eight through 12 best in the Euros. I don't think they're you know right at the top of the list, but I think they could be a pot two team. And in my head, I just sort of replaced them. Uh, I, I, I replaced Russia with the United States because that- Should have replaced Italy, but go on. That, well, yeah, fair enough. Um, that would have put them in group B at the Euros, which was actually a pretty good draw. Denmark, Finland, Belgium in that group, along with the US in this fictional reality. Really outside of group F, in that tournament, which I'd completely forgotten about. Do you guys remember who was in Group F at Euro 2024, if it's not in any of your notes? It was the Group of Death. Sorry, Euro 2021, excuse me. It was the Group of Death. Graham, oh, Graham Germany, Spain? Germany no? France, Portugal, ah. and Hungary. Ah. That was the, That is That's a brutal right. group. Like That is a really, really good group. I don't think the U.S. is getting top three in that group because you need to be either top two or one of the best four third-place teams to get out in the 2014 tournament to the round of 16. Generally speaking, though, I think the U.S. is good enough to at least make it to the round of 16. Doing that's not that hard in a 2014 tournament. I think, in, depending on the draw, it's entirely possible that they make a quarterfinal run. I even think a semifinal run is possible. I don't think it's the most likely outcome. But I think if you get on the right side of that draw and you end up against a, a Denmark and then later on like a, a Belgium or somebody like that, you can absolutely make a deep <laughs> run. So that's that's my thought on the Euros. I'll quickly run through the others. AFCON. Can, I just, can I just... Yeah, go ahead, uh, Joe, I really want you to do that. I just want listeners to know that uh, I was watching Graham and Ryan as Joe was was kind of talking through where he thought the U.S. would go. Graham, zero facial expression. Ryan with the most like, oh, oh you poor lamb. Like, that's so cute of you. So I, I look forward to that Bless debate heart, happening because I think I, I might agree more with Joe. Not surprisingly. Boom. Anyway, Joe, let's Roasted. talk. Uh, let's talk AFCON. American takeover. Well, I mean, so one more beat on the Euros. It just, it all depends on the draw. Like, I, I don't think the U.S. Yeah. is one of the best four to six teams in, in Europe if they were to Correct. be playing in UEFA. I don't think that's true at all. But conceivably, one half of that draw, um, it was Wales and Denmark in the bottom corner, the Netherlands against the Czech Republic. Then the Czech Republic beat the Netherlands to play Denmark. And then it ended up being the Czech Republic and Denmark to go on and play England. Like, that's a doable path to get to the semifinals, which is where that England-Denmark game was. I think that's that's totally possible. Anyway, moving on to AFCON. Played in 2021, same 24-team format as the Euros, and the pots were seeded based off the FIFA rankings. So the U.S. would totally be a pot one team. I think they're absolutely getting out of the group, and I think they've got a really good chance to make it all the way to the final and win the final. Probably favored, to be honest, over Morocco and Egypt and Senegal, which are teams towards the top of AFCON at the moment. So I, I really like the U.S.'s odds in that one. Asian Cup, sort of the same deal. 2014 format, last played in 2019. It's the U.S. and Japan, who I think are probably the biggest favorites, along with Iran and, and maybe South Korea as well. But really good chance in that. And then the OFC Nations Cup. I'm going to say it now, guys. The U.S. men's national team are <laughs> honorary OFC Nations Cup champions. Sorry, New Zealand. Uh, I would agree with that, with the OFC, uh, for sure. The Asian Cup, I thought I would have a little, it would be a little bit trickier. I, I think, Joe, it is not helped by the fact that in 2019, it is Qatar that wins that tournament, yeah. uh, beating Japan 3-1 to one of the final, that Qatar team that then failed to win a game at the World Cup. So, looking at that one, yeah, Qatar beating Japan to the final, and then in the semis, it was Japan with a 3-0 win over Iran, Qatar beating UAE 4-0. I think the U.S. is making at least the semis, if not the final. I think there's a good chance they could win that one. And I felt similarly about CAF. I thought it would be they get out of the group, maybe they get knocked out in the quarters of the semis. But, Joe, to your point, there are strong teams in there. There are very tricky teams in there. And there are teams that the United States has struggled against in the past. But I just I don't think like Egypt have enough comprehensively to be a huge threat to the United States. Maybe Morocco do, maybe Cameroon, maybe Senegal. But the the quarterfinals of the last one was Burkina Faso, Tunisia, Senegal, Equatorial Guinea, Gambia, Cameroon, Egypt, Morocco. I feel like the United States can can get through some of those opponents pretty easily. So I agree with you. I think with with AFCON, we're looking at like semifinals, I would say, comfortably. Uh, with the Euros, I still think it's probably closer to the U.S. at the World Cup, where they, they get out, especially because there are third-place finishers that get out. And then it's about getting a favorable draw and sort of executing your game plan uh, well against stronger opposition. But I think there could be a run there as well. I think initially I thought, struggle to, to get out of the group, lose in the first round. Joe, I think I'm now more inclined to say they make a little bit of a run I don't know if they're making the semis or the finals, but I think there is a, a better run to be had there. Yep. Round of 16, if you had to do like which of these outcomes is the most likely, I think round of 16 is the most likely outcome for the U.S. at the Euros. 
and probably followed by that closely is like an even split between the quarterfinals and just like not making the round of 16 in the first place, depending on the draw. So it, it, it's possible. I kind of shared your thoughts on AFCON as well, thinking that, you know, before I did the research, thinking that, oh man, this is this is going to be really hard. And I realized why that is. I was conflating CAF qualifying, World Cup qualifying yeah. with AFCON and, and realizing how difficult it has been to get out of CAF to go to the World Cup in, in past formats. And it'll still be hard, just not as hard with the expanded World Cup. Yeah. But so many like knockout games, so many, you know, fine, fine margins compared to other more group style competitions. I think also with AFCON, it's worth noting it would depend a lot on where that tournament is being played because we talk a lot about how unpopular the United States is geopolitically in Central America and in South America. We don't have a great record in Africa either, put it that way. So I could see that being a game where every opponent really raises their game, where there's a very hostile atmosphere for every single game, where the U.S. is very much the the team that everyone is rooting against, including neutrals. So that would be the other intangible as to why AFCON might be a little bit tricky for me. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point, Taylor. I, I, I agree with most of what's been said so far, but there is the presumption that these games are played in a vacuum, which they're not. There will be yeah. difficult difficulties in playing in... Well, difficulties playing everywhere for the States. Because and we've had, never had any problems in, in Southeast Asia, so like that yeah. would just go swimmingly as well, yeah. I'm sure. I, I mean, I can't think of a territory where the US would get lavished with praise, frankly, but... Uh, Wisconsin? Yeah, there's that. There's that. <laughs> the Asian Cup in Wisconsin. Greg, what do you think? <laughs> OSC Nations Cup in Wisconsin next time around? What do you think? Yeah, why not? I do think the US would uh, have a very good chance of winning the OFC Nations Cup, given that when I looked through the past tournaments, Papua New Guinea made the last Nations Cup final in 2016. 2016, by the way, you may have noticed, is quite a while ago. That's like seven years ago. They just they just didn't play the last Nations Cup because of COVID. They just said, ah, we'll just, we'll just forget that that was in the schedule. They never played it. Um, so it doesn't exactly say a great deal about the standard of that competition. I broadly agree Graham, with everything that has been said so far. On you go, Ryan. I want to drop a nerdy fact. My great-great-grandfather was governor of Papua New Guinea because there was a time when the British military was. was. People, people in the British military were just given jobs like that. Right, yeah. so many questions. <laughs> Who lived in his neighbourhood? That's what the people want to know. What famous you, soccer players lived all in his these, neighbourhood? All all this, all this time, we've been joking and laughing about oh, British colonization. You, you, you were the ones that were doing it. Your family was yeah. doing it. Just got real. Just got real. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, did you get real? Ryan, can I get a surname? <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's, continue. Let's continue. I just need to read about what uh, atrocities uh, were committed uh, under <laughs> under on. your your grandfather's Come tenure on. in charge. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> wow. Uh, anyway, I broadly agree with everything that has been said. I think I slightly disagree with um, kind of the standard of the teams at the top of AFCOM. So I certainly agree you'd hope the US would make the, the semifinals a good number of times. I'm not saying you guys are, are writing off Senegal and Egypt and Morocco as, as no-hopers. I just I just think those would be very difficult games for the US. For like sure. Morocco made the semi-finals of, of, of the last World Cup. Senegal, I know they didn't do excellent at the last World Cup, but I remember they won AFCON uh, when Sadio Mane went, uh, scores the penalty to win it. They were very impressive in that tournament. And Egypt are the kings of AFCON. They always seem to turn it on for, for AFCON and struggle a little bit in the World Cup. So I think, and, and these are teams with, you know, I mentioned Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah for Egypt. They've got genuine difference makers. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if the US lost a final to Senegal or Egypt or Morocco, but yes, I agree that the US would be in that group looking to win AFCON every single time. David Hay? David Hay, Ryan? Is that who we're talking about? <laughs> That's a boxer. <laughs> let's let's talk off it. Leslie <laughs> Wilson Johnson? Uh, <laughs> right. I'll get I'll get us back on track. Uh, to get to the second part of Ben's question, is the Gold Cup the only version of these tournaments or BC squads are a regular occurrence? Uh, yes, and also no, because the Gold Cup isn't that either. Like it, It's pretty much just the US that brings a, a secondary group of players to the Gold Cup. Mexico brings their A-team. Like, you go back through and look at the 2023 Gold Cup roster, and it's Alvarez is in there, and all the other good Mexico players are in there, basically. The U.S. has chosen to prioritize the Nations League and, and give their players a bit more balance. So, yes, but also, like, no, not not really. These are these are the continental tournaments in the Gold Cup. U.S. soccer and, and, and the U.S. M&T specifically have chosen to approach it a little bit differently. Any more on that? Any thoughts? B teams, C teams. Still I don't think you want to hear Taylor's thoughts at the moment. Still waiting for a surname. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, no, I think I think I really like this question because it does make me uh, 
simultaneously interested in learning more about the other confederations and nervous to say like, yeah, we'd be able to get past certain African opposition to then be met by people being very annoyed that I didn't give Cameroon or Senegal their proper billing. Senegal would be the team that I think I'd be most nervous about uh, looking at the the depth of talent they have, the successes they have had at times. I, I feel like that would be a pretty yeah. tricky one. I doubt we're getting a B or a C team for them. Oh, also, have you seen the strikers that Nigeria have at the moment? Pretty, oh, uh, everyone, pr- every good one on the planet right now, except for Harry yeah, Kane, exactly. plays for Nigeria. So, actually, yeah, Nigeria yeah, are a funny team where they don't, them, yeah. they kind of under underachieve a lot of the time. But in terms of talent, they they might actually be like the biggest threat to the US. Wonderful. Oof. Stuff. Oof. Those uh, names get better and better. Wow. Okay, then. Okay, Nigeria. <laughs> They've got a lot of good strikers at the moment. Awesome we'll be on the other side of the bracket face. from them. We'll be fine. <laughs> good stuff thank you very much Ben for that question let's take a quick break when we come back we're talking MLS we're talking USL we're maybe not talking about George Thomas Bailey being Governor General of Papua New Guinea we'll find uh, out back shortly there we are <laughs> looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone well, luckily with 24-7 US based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Richard Rolson has been in touch. Hello, Richard. Richard's question, here we go. Has Don Garber been commissioner of Major League Soccer for too long? Let's go to MLSsoccer.com's Joe Lowry for his uh, perspective Ouch. on this one. <laughs> Um, yeah, let the shill go first. That, that's that's the right move. Um, I think it's possible. Richard, I think it's entirely possible. He's been in this role since 1999. That's a long time. His contract is now up, basically, so that expires at the end of 2023. I, I don't get the sense that he will move on or be asked to move on. I, I would Who imagine. Who decides whether he gets a new contract or well, not? So, yeah, so this is, this we, is part of why it. Why do executives have contracts also? I don't understand that. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know the. Se- I don't know the second question. The first so, answer. So the owners can have a, a looming sword hanging over their head yeah. at any given moment. I think is probably the answer. Well, okay. so I think the important thing to note here with all this is that the MLS commissioner, the office of commissioner in Major League Soccer, reports to the owners. Right. The 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 chain of command, the hierarchy, is not commissioner on top and everybody else underneath. It is very much the people with all the money on top who run the teams and run the league on the top of the pyramid. And then everybody else underneath them. Now, Don Garber just happens to be closer to those people than anybody else in Major League Soccer or in soccer spheres. But with that being said, like I think that's part of why I don't have a strong feeling about this. It's part because it's a little difficult to parse the specifics of what the commissioner is supposed to do and how much of what happens in Major League Soccer comes from him and how much of that comes from the owners, right? Like, we just had a board of governors meeting. Uh, we. The MLS owners just had a board of governors meeting where they vote on the big important topics surrounding MLS and the league's future. And Taylor, you guys and I talked about that yesterday. Like they just decided not to do anything. And that's the owners. That's not Don Garber saying like, wow, guys, like I'm not going to make any of these moves. It's the owners deciding, Hey, we don't have enough votes to pass this or to pass that or whatever it is. So the MLS constitution, which I had the pleasure of reading some of this morning, uh, gives us some help on like what the commissioner does, but it's a lot of more general stuff rather than specific stuff. Uh, Here's the opening general line, and it does give a a bit more detail later on, but I don't need to read all of it. It says, MLS employs a commissioner to serve as the CEO of MLS and the principal public spokesperson for the league. The commissioner reports to the board of governors. Read the owners. So, like, really, as I understand it, the most important job of the commissioner is interfacing with the board, board of governors, right? It's, It's the people that are running the teams that have all the money that are propelling MLS into whatever direction they're propelling MLS into. Those are the people that make the big calls, would a new person in the commissioner role change things and maybe influence the owners to do different stuff? I kind of doubt it, to be honest with you. They I, might I, make a stronger sales pitch in those in those meetings, which is the, the, the point I come to with, with Garber is I understand what you're saying, Joe. He ultimately doesn't make the decision on these rosters. But he does have a role. Buff. He absolutely has a role. Yeah. 
yeah, is, is his role to make the to, to, to turn up with the pitch deck and make the sales pitch of this is why you should vote in this certain way. And maybe he is doing that, and maybe they're just ignoring him, but we don't really have the evidence to suggest that is the case. And Every time we hear Don Garber speaking about this sort of stuff, he is very cautious, and he talks about kind of incremental changes and, 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 and so on. So yeah. I can see why people maybe think this might be coming to the, the kind of the end of the, the road for his time as, as commissioner. Yes, so do I, and maybe maybe I'm being cynical about all this. Like, I have a hard time believing that commissioner role is, like, super impactful for the, for the big picture direction of the league. The commissioner is in, in charge of a lot of stuff, like a lot of the smaller, more day-to-day stuff. And I assume that all gets delegated out to other people. But like really another cynical part of me says like, okay, Don Garber goes and leaves and who's going to be the next commissioner? Well, it's not going to be someone coming from the NFL like it was before. It's going to be the next person in line inside of Major League Soccer. And you're not really going to get a, a like big narrative shift or suddenly a big strategic change. Because again, it's not the commissioner who dictates those things. It's them that are trying to sort of prod and, and maybe guide the owners along. Could someone do a better job of that than Don Garber and make better decisions? Absolutely. Like, I'm sure that person exists somewhere on the planet. Um, but I, I think maybe some of these things are a little more complicated and nuanced than sometimes we think they are. Joe, is there an element for you of like better the devil you know that you'd rather stick with, with Don Garber than have somebody else come in? Because for me, I think about like, Set Blatter is out of FIFA and it's like, yay, everything's going to be great. And then Gianni Infantino comes in and it's like a 700 team club world cup. And I think, oh no, like, I don't know. It's better, but it's not better at the same time. I think, I think that's part of it. I I also want to be clear. Like, like I said, I don't feel super strongly about this. It's not like, oh, I I demand Don Garber stay in charge of major league soccer, right? I can just see those tweets being sent out already. Uh, But like, I, I don't think there is a clear and obvious shift in the commissioner, like in who's doing that role that has like the, the giant impact on Major League Soccer that fans want to see right now. Yeah. And I also appreciate this is this is probably the wrong week to um stand up for MLS leadership and 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 Don Garber as commissioner. I know there are a lot of um kind of unpleasant things going on this week and and, and last week with the US Open Cup. But Don Garber has been and his leadership, because as you say, Joe, we don't know how much is kind of down to him as commissioner, but his premiership for MLS has been pretty spectacularly successful. I don't think another yeah. league in the world has grown in the way that MLS has and one of the most impressive things about Garber's time in charge is I always feel like he has delivered the next step for the league. So it probably starts in my mind with Beckham, then it's the expansion of the league, then it's the expansion into like slightly more obscure markets like Portland and Orlando where there's a real soccer culture. And I remember around that time thinking and writing articles, I'm not entirely sure that Garber can deliver the next thing. But then the league went back into big markets and got Atlanta United and LAFC and now enter Miami and you have Messi and the Apple deal. Like 2023 has been a huge year for MLS. It's been one of the most landmark years for the league between Messi and the $2.5 billion Apple deal. Having said all that, just to come back to my earlier point, I do kind of wonder if this is this might be the jumping off point for Garber and, and that's the lack of roster rule changes for next season and just the general feeling of settling for what the league has at the moment rather than pushing pushing it. And I, I listened to yesterday's podcast with, um, with the three of you with Gas and very good points were made. I would recommend listeners go and listen to that and wh- how Gas in particular did a good job of explaining how owners would see it as this being a sign of the success that they have had. Why would they Why would they change course when this is what it has delivered so, so far? I can see that argument. But from my point of view, this is the time to really push on so that when Messi leaves and when the, and after the 2026 World Cup passes, you have one of the strongest leagues in the world. And I'm just, I'm just not convinced that the current leadership is terribly interested yeah. in that kind of direction. I think, I think, to go back to that episode for a moment, like it's telling that the the commission that comes together to decide on expanded roster rules and uh, roster spots and the like uh, isn't Don Garber at all. It's a bunch of the owners. And to Joe's point, I think it is still Don Garber. He has power. He has control over certain things. Don't get me wrong. But ultimately, it's the owners making those choices. And I think, Graham, you're dead on that. I'm not sure the owners do want to have to spend that money and have to be aggressive. I think they're sort of content with things as they are, especially with how things have gone since Garber took over. Like he, he does, he's there for when the league is almost about to fold and there's contraction and then there's expansion and there's soccer specific stadiums along the way. And there's new TV deals and there's the Beckham rule. And there's just been so much change under Don Garber 
I would say most of it positive. Uh, Ryan, if you had come to me, my answer was just going to be yes, like, but maybe no. It's it's very confusing as to has he been there too long. Um, but I think ultimately, I don't know if anybody else is going to come in and be empowered to to change the the destiny of Major League Soccer and really push them into a new direction. It feels like it will be somebody, to Joe's point, who's kind of been there, has a lot of the connections that are necessary to be a successful commissioner. Uh, and, and so at the end of the day, I'm, I'm fine with it being Don Garber, even if right now it feels like a very frustrating moment to have this conversation. Yeah. One other little thing that I think is worth noting, because it's just a, an odd thing about, I think, American sports in general. I looked at some of the other commissioners because I was wondering what the kind of standard is. And... Commissioners are there for a long time. So Adam Silver has been NBA commissioner since 2014. Before him, it was David Stern from 1984 until 2014. So that tells you how the NBA goes. It's been Roger Goodell since 2006 in the NFL. Before him, it was Paul Tagliabue from 1989 to 2006. And Gary Bettman has been the NHL commissioner since 1993. He's still the NHL commissioner. And so I think it, it is just a person who... I shouldn't say just a person, but it seems to be a person who can sort of manage the various demands of the different owners, some who want this, some who want that, and how you can kind of build consensus while still growing the league. And I think Don Garber has done that. So I don't think he's been there too long, but it is a really interesting question. Yeah. Plus, Adidas have already printed all the balls for next season with his signature on it, and they don't want to redo all that. So. That's a good point. You need someone with a good That's the determinant factor right there. I like it. Yeah, I think Joe. I think you hit the nail on the head uh, when you mentioned about where the next commissioner would come from. Yeah. It would likely be promoted from within because yes. the key stakeholders in MLS are not going to be looking to um, reinvent the wheel at this point. It's given be gas. it could be, could be. That's, yeah, that's... We don't know where he is on the ladder, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the key stakeholders aren't going to want to shake things up too much, given the trajectory that the league has been on and the milestones it's achieved. Yep, I think I, I would be absolutely flabbergasted if the new commissioner of Major League Soccer, whenever there is one, does not come from within Major League Soccer or or a surrounding relevantly tied organization. Like if, if folks want change and, and like as a fan, I think having change would be great and having more good players in MLS would be awesome. If, if people want that to happen, like maybe changing the commissioner can do something. But as far as what would be a much more impactful change, it's changing ownership in a number of key markets so that you can get the super majority that you need to go along with Arthur Blank and Jorge Mas and these other owners, Larry Berg, that want to push things forward um, while there's ownership in Dallas and Vancouver and some of these other markets that just are really happy with how... Th- Colorado, obviously. Like, ones that are really happy with how things are now. And, and to an extent, they're right to be that way. Graham, you did a good job of outlining those things, but... I don't think changing the commissioner, and I know this isn't what Richard asked, but I don't think changing the commissioner is the best or most impactful change you could make to propel MLS into a new era. All right, Richard, thank you very much indeed for your question. We go now to Chris Jones, who says, what is the latest on USL's vote on promotion and relegation? And what are your thoughts on how it could work? Do you see it being successful? Why? Or why not? Uh, Graham, this has been a conversation at league level for a little while. It was reported in the Athletic excuse me, in July that conversations have been happening. So there has been some executive change at USL. Got a new president, Paul McDonough, in May. The league's got a new sporting director, Oliver Viss, coming in uh, a few weeks ago. So, you know, times it could be a change in. Yeah, I found an update on a site called Backhield. Don't know if any of you hmm. guys have heard of that site, uh, but apparently promotion and relegation, this is from an article earlier this month, uh, an interview actually, um, will be a topic of discussion during the league's winter meetings in January. So it very much seems to be on the agenda still, even if there aren't solid plans for it just yet. In terms of my own personal opinions, I, I, I think promotion and relegation should absolutely be top of the priority list for the USL. It's, it's, it's not a, admittedly, it's not a league system that I watch much much of at all, although I did watch the the final that Phoenix Rising were in yeah, to make did. Joe happy. Um, but the promotion relegation would be a real differentiator for that league. It would be a reason to be a USL fan over an MLS fan. Uh, and I'm not sure there are enough of those reasons besides, you know, your local team being a, a USL team. If you're a neutral fan looking for a team, this would be a reason to be a USL fan. And you'd get so many great stories like you do all over the world with promotion and relegation and having that mobility. And, and in theory, you would have 
the cream rising to the top where the best run teams would end up at the top of the, 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 the division. And then equally, the, the poorly ran teams, there would be an incentive for them to get better. Um, so I think you just end up with a stronger soccer landscape in the United States. And USL has always been in this kind of awkward position of wanting to p- compete with MLS, but not really being in the position to do so. And obviously they've got the, there's the tiers from US, handed down from US soccer that says, you know, it's not a tier one uh, league. This would be something for them to position themselves in the marketplace saying, come and support us because we have this fantastic thing that really is the lifeblood of soccer around the world that yep. MLS doesn't have. Yep, I, I agree with all that, Graham. A, a little bit more detail on sort of where ProRel stands right now with the United Soccer League, an organization that covers several different men's leagues and now also women's leagues in the United States. They most relevantly have for this conversation the USL Championship, which is a second division league in the U.S., and USL League One, which is a third division league in the United States. Graham, you mentioned that article from John Morrissey who uh, that, that he did for us over at Backheel interviewing USL League One president. And the idea here is that, yep, this is still going to be a topic of conversation, right? That was the, the ProRel takeaway from that article. They have winter meetings coming up in January. It's going to be talked about there, as you said. When I talked to USL Championship President Jeremy Alumba back in October, I believe it was, like he said, yep, it's been a topic of conversation. It was a topic of conversation at the mid-year meetings that they had in August. And basically, it's going to continue to be one. This is not new for USL. Like when Jake Edwards was, was running the show for the USL, and now he's back over in England. Like he told me and several other folks around the American soccer landscape, this is something we're thinking about. We would like to implement this. USL has been banging that drum for a long time. I, I do think now it is being more seriously considered than ever before. And it is less like, oh, let's dangle some publicity here for a few easy clicks and much more of a, yes, we would like publicity. And we think ProRel could be a sustainable way to get us some publicity inside of the American soccer landscape, which is a completely defensible and I think right opinion. Graham, you kind of talked about that already. The, the, hic- the hiccup with some of this stuff, as always, is with the decision makers, with, with the owners of these teams, because it does represent a risk moving from a model where teams who are in the championship pay more and have larger costs to get into the league, if nothing else, than USL League One teams. Last I checked, it's $20 million for an expansion fee into the championship and five for an expansion fee into League One. Those are noticeable, but not insurmountable differences. And I think that does go and explain Part of what Alumba told me a couple of months ago for Backyield saying, like, basically they have owners. He, he called it a wide spectrum of interest from owners, right? Like, clearly there are some owners who are gung-ho about this idea. And there are some owners that are not into this idea. And that's why this thing has moved so slowly to begin with. But yeah, before I turn it over to Taylor for his 47-step pro-rel plan, which I'm very <laughs> eager to hear. Like, this is, this is real. And I think it will happen. If I had to guess, I think it will happen. I don't know. For sure, but it is being talked about within and outside of the USL among relevant stakeholders. And I think momentum is building towards something happening on this front. I don't want to ruin Joe's optimism. So maybe we could just end it there because I I think maybe I'm just more cynical and I see them announcing it and then it felt like kicking it down the road a little bit. And And it also felt to me like that vote, if they do have it, is going to be a vote to decide if we are theoretically interested in potentially establishing a system that could lead to really it does it doesn't feel like it's a thing that is going to happen quickly it's not in imminent. my mind it's absolutely not imminent yes yeah so it's something that I, I i think is is absolutely essential for usl and i think like if they were to do it i do feel like sooner rather than later with some of the recent headlines from major league soccer you really can capitalize on that and make it into a soccer for all and we want everybody to have a chance and and i think it would generate a ton of interest but i also think there are pretty obvious reasons why some owners don't want it and why there are concerns about how it would work so i think it's it will remain a tricky thing that I think we'll continue to get sound bites about because it generates clicks and generates interest and generates goodwill right away that they're even open to the idea of ProRel. But I think I'm more cautious about it actually happening, though I think it should and would help that league for sure. Yeah, it would indeed. It would be a lot of fun. Uh, maybe not so much for the owners that Joe mentioned who paid uh, four times as much right. for their franchise. But fee. but the the calculus here, like this is this is the decision, right? If USL chooses to forego the idea of promotion and relegation... They're, the bet that they're making is that, yeah, we can we can make more money. We can be a sustainable, effective product. And we can do that without promotion and relegation. Like, we can be relevant and capture interest and in, in money and all that stuff without it. 
But if you go and and make the risk, you take the risk to institute promotion and relegation, the choice that you're making, the bet that you're making is that it's actually worth it for us to take the risk of dropping down a level and limiting some, you know, maybe some minor market attention that would that would change if people would maybe stop paying a little bit more attention, not that a ton are to begin with. And like maybe there's some financial impacts there as well. But the choice you're making is it's worth it. That risk is worth it because we think that the general attention that instituting ProRail and actually having it in our organization, we think that that will raise enough interest and in, in money from consumers that like we can take the hit. We can take the 10% chance or whatever, 5% chance of being relegated every year because like the upside is, is actually worth pursuing. That's the calculation. I think because the numbers are so small on the revenue side, and I think because... Like, there's not that big of a difference between a championship team and a League One team right now. I mean, we're having teams go up this year. North Carolina is going up from League One to the championship. Like, you can go out here and, and generally compete in one or the other. Maybe not entirely. But I think that risk is worth taking, to be honest. Yeah, I agree, Joe. Joe, has there been any um, has there been any indication in any interviews or any public comments on how it would actually work to, to address that part of Chrissy's question because that is that is I am absolutely and I think we're all in agreement I am certain in my mind that USL should do this hmm. where it gets a little bit stickier is how they do this yeah. with you know two different conferences in one league and and a smaller league below in, in uh, league one than the championship and I want to keep it simple that was like top of my notes was keep it sim- simple because part of the genius of promotion and relegation is how simple it is and sometimes American soccer MLS is uh, is, is good at making things a little bit complicated with yeah. schedules and roster rules and formats um, but I did kind of struggle to come up with other than just having three up three down three up yeah and then just kind of like reshuffling the east and the west in the championship like you would do with like an expansion team i, I kind of struggle to come up with anything more than that yeah so i i asked alumba about this idea and like he he ended up talking a bit about march madness and i didn't really understand exactly what the train of thought was on that front we did have USL League One institute a new cup competition, and, and maybe this is going to expand inside of the USL. And there is some like knockout element to some of this. But Graham, to your point, feels like maybe there's some overcomplication being done on that front. But it wasn't yeah. like a, you know, we're going to do a 64 team March Madness style knockout tournament, and that's going to be our league format. I don't think that's what he was saying, but I, I don't really understand much. So to answer your question in a roundabout way, there hasn't been really anything concrete said about this. I've heard a few things and some some things on the cup side that that maybe we'll continue to see that expand over time. Uh, O'Neill said as much to John in in that piece that that Morrissey wrote. So like there is something there, but really I I think the simplest way to do it is exactly what you said, right? In the infrastructure you have now, conceivably, if you had to tomorrow or next season or whatever, you could send three up from League One and three down from the championship. I think the USL would like to add one more league underneath and have a three like three tiers of men's professional soccer. That is going to take a long time to do because they're having trouble expanding League One as it is with MLS Next Pro poaching some markets. So I think that is a decade plus off into the future, probably more than that. But yeah, just keep it simple at the beginning. Send three up, send three down, and bang, bang, boom. You've done it. Solved it. Solve soccer. There we go. I, I just have a bonus from. trivia for the Discord because uh, you all have said the phrase so many times. Uh, in what movie will you find the line, what does three up, three down mean to you? To which the response is the end of an inning. That's that's the question for the Discord because uh, I've watched that movie like 20 times when I was a kid. Are you asking the Probably Discord because you know we won't know? Is that Yes, is that the, yeah. yes I am. <laughs> gotcha. Yes, I am. Cool. And you're correct. Yeah, you're spot on yeah. about that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's take a break while listener Googles that answer. We'll be back with uh, our favorite soccer announcers and, of course, the one you've been waiting for, Animals Invading the Field. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. 
Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. John Martin with an excellent one here. Who is each of your favourite game announcers? John nominates Derek Ray, solo announcing in the early aughts in the uh, ESPN Champions League coverage. That's his personal favourite of all time. For me, Graham, Peter Jury. Right. So this is interesting that this question has come up this week. Because watching, and interesting, I thought you might off the top, off the top of the question mention Peter Drury. Because watching the Liverpool United game on Sunday there, I think I'm changing my mind a little bit on Peter Drury. He was my absolute favourite when I didn't have to listen to him every single week. When, when you've got a game on, every, when, you get, when you get him on a game every so often, I'll explain my thinking. When you, when you have a game on and he's the commentator, every so often it feels like a treat and you'd get like a bit of poetry and great lines and particularly for things like World Cup finals, World Cup openers, big games, he's the guy for that job. Now I'm getting him every single week on Sky in the Premier League. It's just a little bit too much. I don't need a soliloquy every time the teams come out for a match, especially if it's Burnley versus Bournemouth or something. Um, So I still like him, but maybe not every single week. Have you ever seen Matilda, Ryan, the film? With the it's Danny Vito one? Yeah. Yeah? It's a little bit like where they get Bruce to eat the giant chocolate cake on the stage in the, in the assembly. I like chocolate cake, but it's too much of it and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be sick. I feel a bit like that with I Peter see. Drury. So Peter moment. Drury is too rich for your tastes. Okay, very good. Because, yeah, yeah, because every of his single command week. of the English language, Graham. Oh, he is a fantastic orator and, 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 and a fantastic commentator from time to time. It's just a bit much. Like, as I say, like every single game, I'm like, you don't you don't have to do poetry at the start of this one. All right. Fair enough. Taylor, any thoughts on that? Uh, not on Peter Drury and Graham's love of overindulging in cake. Uh, but in terms of uh, announcers, first of all, I feel like John Martin, the person who asked this question, could also be an announcer, and that name feels appropriate for it. Maybe because my first answer is John Motson, uh, who I think was the voice of FIFA when I first started playing it, mm. and that's the voice that I will forever associate with FIFA. There's like a dryness to his delivery, like not in terms of the British dryness, like a dry sense of humor. I, I can't really explain it, but his voice alone... I think is so great. And he's not, to my mind, I'm sure he has moments where he has great turns of phrase, but I think what I remember and like when I went back and watched clips of him is just much more honest assessments of like when uh, Paul Gascoigne gets the set, the yellow that will keep him out of the final. And there's just a like, oh no, oh no. Like he's very clearly emotionally impacted by that. I I just like the kind of candidness, but also his voice overall. And then a man yeah. whose name I will never be able to pronounce properly, Clive Tildesley? Is that Tildesley. how we say it? There we go. Clive Tildesley, yeah. I mean, the 1999 uh, treble coverage alone, the way he, the, the turns of phrase in that one just are so... So looms so large in my head, and that is because I'm a Man United fan. But like yeah. them setting up uh, for a throw-in, and he calls that the base camp for the last final assault. Uh, screaming and Solskjaer has won it is a great one. Ken Manchester it's United one of the score, best they always score. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like a solid three four minute bit where it's almost like you know where commentators they'll do the commentary for highlights and they know what's yeah. going to happen, but he's doing that live. Yeah, and so there's things like before, as you say, Taylor, like before the the first corner, he says, "Can Manchester United score?" They always score, and then they score from from that moment. It's, it's fantastic. Clive Tilsley, his voice will always be synonymous with big games for me. So when I was growing up, he was the voice of the Champions League and big World Cup matches and England matches. So like the Beckham free kick against Greece, I think is Clive Tilsley. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and he just has like such a very distinctive way of saying players, like I would say Beckham, yep. Rooney. Like it's just <laughs> Clive Tilsley's voice. Uh, he has the, the quintessential uh, football commentary voice in, in my mind. And the, even the little exchange he has, I don't remember who his color commentator was for that game, but Schmeichel comes up, the goalkeeper for Man United comes up for the the corner kick. He obviously doesn't score. He's like around the ball, though, uh, and they, then they equalize. And then when they get the, the final corner from which they score, there's the, even a the little bit of back and forth of like, Schmeichel not coming up for this one. And the color commentator immediately responding, like, thinks he's done enough. <laughs> and I yeah. just like that alone is just a great little moment, too. Wonderful. Uh, Joe. Your nominee, please. Joe's yeah. favorite is silence. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I don't, like 1. I said. 1.5 speed. I said this before. Yeah, that ideally. Um, I don't really listen to a ton of games with the volume on, but I, I do enough to have like a pretty good sense of who's good and who's bad. Graham, I completely agree with your assessment of, pre- of Peter Jury. I think his intros and some of that stuff for the big moments are absolutely fantastic. 
Some of it can feel a bit over the top, and, and I'm not even trying to knock his craft. That's just a personal preference. He isn't clearly incredible at his job. But as long as we're doing a bit over the top, Ray Hudson is on my list 100%. Yeah. Iconic. Um, love him or hate him. I, I love him when the volume's on, that is. But he is, he's absolutely on this list for me. Um, Derek Ray, I do appreciate in a lot of ways. Martin Tyler is another one that's on my list for the FIFA connection. Um, mm-hmm. Taylor, you were talking about you know FIFA when you were, were playing more of it. Martin Tyler is on that for me. I think Derek Ray's on it now, isn't he? I don't I don't remember actually. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's the voice of FIFA. Yeah, Martin Tyler is is the one that I would still go to on that front. So those are a few of the ones that I, I at least smile at when I see her on games. I, John Champion is another one of my oh, nominations. Yeah. So if we're talking about a duo, John Champion and Ali McCoyster are Hall of Fa- Hall of Famers for me with the chem- chemistry that they have together. Um, I think it was the. 2018 World Cup ITV in the UK kind of put those together for games I remember people on Twitter like searching for games that those two were on because Ali McCoy was just having the the time of his life going to museums and all these like interesting incredible Russian cities and they've got really good chemistry between um, themselves and and I've I've also met John Champion once and he couldn't have been nicer so he's a he's a a good guy in my book Um, in terms of like American commentators, like MLS commentators, I'm interested in what you guys think. Um, Kev Egan, who's someone that I listen to on MLS, yeah, I didn't realize until recently he's the voice of Monday Night Raw. Yeah, yes. I was watching a yeah, I was watching a bit of WWE. I'm not a massive WWE fan, but it was on the TV one night, and I was like, that sounds like Kev Egan, the MLS commentator. It is that completely blew my mind? I didn't know that he had that kind of cross. Uh, interest between soccer and uh, WWE. Yeah, yeah, I love. I think Egan does a really good job. Uh, I think Tyler Terrence and Devin Kerr are both really, really good. Uh, it, it's been cool to see them go from commentating Phoenix Rising games to commentating like national TV games for Fox. That's been awesome to, to witness. And uh, I like I like Chris Whittingham. I like a number of the other Apple folks. There's also some Apple folks that I, I don't love quite so much. Um, but yeah, Egan is is definitely towards the top of the list. I really enjoy his games. I should know the answer to this, and I apologize uh, that I don't. Who does like the Serie A uh, coverage here in the states? Where is it? Benetti, Benetti, and, and Chris yeah. Whittingham now as well. Yeah. Okay. I feel like. Well, I feel like for, maybe it was Benetti then for so long was just by himself calling games, and he could still make them very engaging and always had a ton of information to back up everything he was saying. So I feel like you could always watch his broadcast and learn. And I think that the same extends to uh, Chris Whitty doing them. Yeah. Um, and then Joe, like Graham made the joke about silence being your favorite. I do know that you will switch over to the Spanish language coverage. And speaking a very limited amount of Spanish, I do sometimes find that strangely engaging when they're like, because they usually have a three person panel. Marcelo Baboa is sometimes on there and he's pretty good uh, from the Spanish, I understand. But just the kind of quiet arguments they will have when it's like, es roja, no? No, 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 es roja. Es roja. And then, like, you can hear them just sort of having that debate and then sure. eventually, like, es roja, no! Like, and, like, they get very animated and very... But at the, at, at the same time, like, dry sarcasm is pretty clear when it comes across, regardless of the language. So I, oh. I like a lot of the UDNA when I can't understand what they're saying, as odd as that might be. What, what, was it roja? Uh, yes, Roja. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you. Thanks for clearing that one up. Uh, John, thank you very much for that question. One final one to squeeze in from Brian Avery. What is your personal favourite instance of an animal invading the pitch? Now, real talk, Taylor. Th- this kind of question is why I podcast. This is why I get up in the morning, this kind of thing, <laughs> right. frankly. I'm interested. Because I struggle to think of ones off the top of my head. I had to do a little bit of reading on this one. Did you have any that did just sort of come to mind right away? Yes. Uh, well, I think the yes. classic of the genre would be Anfield Cat, but yeah. um, not super interesting Anfield Cat, although it's appeared a few times. My favourite is one I wrote about when I blogged back in the day. Was uh, It was in 2013. It was in a Swiss game between FC Thun and Zurich when a Pine Martin yep. invaded the field. Now, for the listeners who are not aware, Pine Martin basically looks like a ferret. It, it looks hilarious, so that it ticks the box there. It runs on. It uh, it's you know weaving in between all the players. Eventually, a player, uh, a defender for Zurich called Loris Benito, catches it. Uh, ends up being bitten by the Pine Martin. Yep. It's just it's just very amusing. I just like it because I like saying Pine Martin mainly. If anybody read of any of the Redwall books as a kid, uh, Pine Martin was definitely one of the villain animals. They were like hero <laughs> animals and they were villain animals. Pine Martin definitely a bad a bad one. And yeah, b- biting people will will get you that yeah. reputation for sure. Ryan, was this an article for Bleacher Report? Because I feel like between the two of us, 
at least one of us was commissioned to write something like this pretty much every month. And that's yeah. where my mind went was 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 uh, was things like this. I remember the Blackburn Rovers chicken. Mm. So Blackburn Rovers are getting relegated from the Premier League. Their fans are protesting against the Venkies, who were the owners and they made their money, their millions in chicken factories. So a fan smuggled a chicken into the stadium on the day they were getting relegated and released it onto the pitch with a little uh, Blackburn Rovers okay. flag tied okay. around it. Yeah, okay. It's a cape. That's exactly what it is. It's a cape, a Blackburn Rovers cape tied around its neck. It's always the one that uh, that I remember. Said with Graham's accent, smuggling a chicken could not sound more like a euphemism <laughs> for something else. That absolutely sounds like Glaswegian slang. Say it again, Graham. Hey, you never smuggled a chicken? There you go. See? See what I'm saying? <laughs> Quit that, somebody. Thank you very much. Uh, Joe, I'm sure you've got seven or eight of these examples to give us now. I just really do love, Ryan, how perfect this was for you. Um, <laughs> sir, Ryan picks the questions. No surprise there. This is a great question, though, Ryan, and there's a reason why um, we, we all love these kinds of things. I've got a couple from the local sort of soccer landscape. Uh, there was a dog who ran onto the field. These are just recent ones as well, so I'm sure there's many more. There was a dog that ran onto the field in El Salvador during a CCL game this past year between the Philadelphia Union and Alianza and like actually made a nice little play on the ball and, and covered a little bit of ground. Everybody was just like kind of smiling and laughing about it. Even the security guy that picks up the dog to take it off the field. is like smiling, a peak CONCACAF moment while also being a fun moment. And those things don't always intersect. So I feel like we should applaud them when they do. And then for some reason, there's like 12 different animal instances surrounding Real Salt Lake. I don't know if you guys remember the cat that ran onto the field for RSL against Tigres a few years ago and like almost stole the ball from Gignac. That was a pretty spectacular moment. And then they've also had not only a duck land on the field, I think that was maybe 2019, that is now the RSL sort of lucky duck, but they also had a raccoon fall through the ceiling at Rio Tinto last year. Oh, yeah. So they're like they're like the, the the vortex for where all these different things are happening. Uh, apparently, one more thing: Freddy Juarez adopted that cat that ran onto the field against Tigres. So um, it, I don't know where the cat is now, but maybe Freddy Juarez still has it. You know, wherever he's at at the moment. The raccoon through the ceiling might actually be my favorite. That's pretty good. That's incredible. It's in the press box, right? Just yeah, raccoon, yeah, somewhere like inside the stadium. Through. Yeah, feels like something should have happened at RFK. Probably did happen at RFK, oh, but certainly. nobody caught it on video. Yeah. Um, I will forever love the grasshopper on Hamas Rodriguez's sleeve at the 2014 oh, yeah. World oh, Cup. Nice. That is one that I remembered as being like, whoa, what is that thing? And was that, that was, a grasshopper or some sort of alien? A uh, little bit of both, I, yeah. I think. It reminded me of a real-life version of when Drogba sort of, I think it was Drogba who had like a, a spider shape shaved into the back of his head. And I can't remember who it was. Solomon Kalu, I think, was looking at him. There's just like a photo, like a perfectly timed photo of him looking at the back of Drogba's head like, like, Dude, you got a spider on your head. Uh, so that one always makes me happy, too, even though it doesn't quite count. I have one for my actual life. Uh, growing up, we had like a very pieced together goal in our backyard. And I had a German shepherd that would always like to play goalie. So we, we I would use like semi underinflated balls so he could catch them. Uh, so then I had to shoot really well or he would grab them out of the air. But as a result, he got like a hankering <laughs> uh, for the soccer ball. And there was definitely a game in my like like travel career where he uh, broke the leash and uh, went and caught the ball and then ran off into the woods and they had to find the new ball and the dog didn't come back for a little while. So that was a, an interesting one in that I feel like I had a role yeah. to play in training him to take the ball and then run away. It feels like if you're bringing a dog to a soccer game, you're just asking for trouble. I found one in, yeah. in, in Brazil of a Grêmio match. You found a dog um, in Brazil? What? <laughs> <laughs> I found a clip of a dog okay. in Brazil at a Grêmio match invading the pitch and then just chasing this pa- this player solidly for about five minutes. And the more the player ran away, obviously, the more the dog wanted to catch him. And it just continued and continued. It felt like it needed uh, Benny Hill music. My favourite, my uh, one further uh, nomination to this question. Um, in 2007, a, an absolutely giant owl landed on the crossbar between uh, in a match between Finland and Belgium. Now, most owls that I have seen in my life, and I've seen, you know, there's, you see them flying about in, in, in the dark or whatever. They're tiny little things, right? At least in Scotland, they are. In Finland... This thing was like two stories high on top of the on top of the crossbar. And I know what you're thinking. Roy Hodgson was Finland manager. He's a giant owl. It wasn't Roy Hodgson. It was an actual giant owl. And it was named Helsinki Citizen of the Year for 2007. When I did my research, I found that out. So Was this a dream, was, Graham? Uh, <laughs> it might have been, yeah. <laughs> I might have uh, smuggled too many, one too many chickens uh, this week. I think, I think I had Finland for some preview we did for something. And that sounds weirdly familiar. And now I'm desperate to see yeah, if it's in my actually, notes somewhere. 
I'm sh- yeah, I vaguely remember that as well, Joe. Yeah. It was some kind of owl story. No, that's comment. real. There's also, if, if we're going to go to the dark side of animal invasions, there is a dark owl story. Uh, in pa- uh, Panama, there was a, a game between Junior Barranquilla and Pereira where an owl mascot that lived in the stadium of Junior Barranquilla, uh, Barranquilla uh, came onto the field. Uh, there was a player called Luis Moreno who kicked it and killed it on the field. Oh, yikes. Yes. He, was, he, he still said, I was just trying to move it on but he kicked it so hard that it did not survive. Uh, so that's wow. that's rough. There's actually been a few bird deaths, um, if I'm going to go down this path as well. Mateo Damien <laughs> for Man United in Santa Clara in 2018 killed a bird with a wayward shot. And on YouTube, there's a video. It's, an, it's some kind of Aussie World Cup qualifier, Australian National Team World Cup qualifier, where Lucas Neal just plays a pass along the field and you just see this explosion of feathers. Uh, where a bird does not I think make if you it. Kick a, if you kick, if you hit a bird with a shot, that's actually two goals. Joe, I think it's buried somewhere in the. Two ice birds with one shot. Is that the uh, saying? Yeah. Joe, talk about it. Is there a Randy Joe. Johnson tie in here oh, somewhere? I mean, there has to Randy be. Randy right? Johnson beating <laughs> a bird with a 147 mile per hour fastball. It was probably Chase Field at that time. Who knows? Legendary Arizona Diamondbacks moment. Taylor, thank you for providing the platform for me to say. I got that. you, buddy. Uh, that was on my non soccer list. You're talking about silence, Englishman. Cease. Right. I, I, in my opinion, the number one version of this in all sport is whenever there's just a gator on the golf course and there's like, oh, we got to navigate that thing. That's always a tricky one. And sometimes it leads to a happy Gilmore situation, which we try to avoid. But just a reminder that like, oh, yeah, there are dinosaurs near the golf course is always a fun one. Yeah, my takeaway from that is that we shouldn't do anything in Florida, personally. I don't know if that's yeah. what everybody else is thinking. Why have the golf but... courses in Florida and then create the lakes? Like, all these golf courses are man-made. They they actually make the lakes for the alligators. Gotta put a gator in. in there, baby. Gotta do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was down in Hilton Head Island in South Carolina a few weeks ago, and it's a similar situation. There's golf courses everywhere, and they're just teeming with gators. And they're all, in the morning when it's sunny, they're all just walking around, and people are like, oh, let's, should we wrestle that thing? Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when yeah. I went to Florida, we we went to Florida. I went to um, Florida with a group of my pals when I was twenty one, and there was a big lake at a golf course. They all they all got really uh, drunk and went skinny dipping in the lake. I wasn't there, and I told them the next morning that was definitely not a good idea, and you got very very lucky. Oh boy. More uh, skinny dipping stories from Graham on the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show if you want to join <laughs> us there. But that concludes our listener questions. Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your endeavors in this audio recording. Thank you, my friend. Well selected questions, well answered, everyone. Uh, I love this episode. Yay, very good. Joe Lowry, you superstar, you. Thank you very much. Oh, right back at you, Ryan. Thanks. And Graham Ruthven, uh, smuggle ye chickens, etc. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ryan Bailey, brigadier of uh, Papua New Guinea descendant. <laughs> <laughs> Tis an honour. Uh, listener, thank you very much for joining us on this one. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye! 